Welcome to the Brady Haywood Podcast, the podcast where we look at engineering failures and disasters. My name is Sean Brady. In our last episode, we began the story of the Brooklyn Bridge. We watched as Washington Roebling, engineer for the Great Bridge, was taken to his Brooklyn home with the Baines. The doctors only gave him the night to live. And with the demise of the chief engineer imminent, there was now no readily conceivable way that this great bridge could be completed. But those who held that view hadn't counted on the actions of one Emily Warren Roebling. So it was the 24th of May, 1883, and crowds began to descend on New York and Brooklyn. About 50,000 people arrived into the city by train, and a similar number arrived by boat. By noon, all the hotels had sold out. It was a beautiful, clear, sunny day, and the East River was thronged with boats, waiting for the spectacle that was about to unfold. Shops sold pictures of John and Washington Roebling, Buildings were draped in red, white and blue banners and the flags flew along 5th Avenue and Broadway. Then at 12.40pm, Chester A. Arthur, the 21st President of the US, walked out of the 5th Avenue Hotel and the waiting crowd went wild. Then the President, along with New York Governor Grosvenor Cleveland, Congressman Henry Solcombe and New York Mayor Franklin Edson began the procession along 5th Avenue to 14th Street. The dandy 7th Regiment and its band led the way, crowds were immense and the procession turned onto Broadway and finally approached the New York side of the newly completed Brooklyn Bridge. For 14 years the residents of New York and Brooklyn had watched the bridge take shape above the city's skyline and when the President took his first step onto its span the guns of nearby Fort Hamilton and the Navy Yard erupted in celebration. Now, while thousands of people would spend the afternoon and evening looking at this engineering marvel, the formalities continued with over three long hours of speeches being delivered to an invited crowd of 6,000 people. Now, among the guests was Emily Warren Roebling, wife of the chief engineer. Now, to many people there, it looked like Emily was simply representing her husband, and he couldn't attend because of illness. But all this changed when Congressman Abram S. Hewitt took to the podium and did something really unusual. He publicly proclaimed Emily's role in what had been one of the most significant engineering achievements ever undertaken. Now, to many people, this was a complete revelation, but to those who were intimately involved in the bridge's construction, there was little surprise in the praise being afforded to Emily. See, to them, her contribution had been staggering, and all the more remarkable given the barriers to women taking such an active role in society, especially in the male-dominated profession of engineering. So who was Emily Warren Roebling and where did she come from? Well, she was born Emily Warren in the village of Cold Spring in upstate New York in 1843. And pretty remarkably, she was the 11th of 12 children. And they weren't a wealthy family by Hudson River standards, but they were a distinguished family. And she attended Georgetown Visitation Convent in Washington, D.C. And there she studied algebra, geometry, astronomy, chemistry and geology. And she was interested and she became an expert horsewoman. And this was a, a pursuit she continued into her adult life. And she did this despite it being viewed as an inappropriate pursuit for the 19th century lady. 
But as we're about to discover with this story, Emily didn't really care about the limitations society wanted to impose on her. And then when the American Civil War was on the way, Emily went and visited her brother, and she attended a military ball. And there she met this shy young engineer, Colonel Washington Roebling. Now apparently the attraction between the two of them was immediate. Over the course of the war, they corresponded regularly. And then in 1865, they married. And as we know, both of their lives would be changed dramatically when Washington's father, John Roebling, was appointed chief engineer for the Brooklyn Bridge. And tragically, of course, we know he would die as a result of the injuries sustained in a freak accident, which left Washington, then only 32 years of age, as chief engineer with the responsibility for finishing the bridge. And at around this time, Emily rekindled her interest in mathematics. Um, and this time she extended her studies to learn about strength of materials, stress analysis, cable construction, and calculation of catenary curves. And that's because the cables on this bridge form a catenary curve. And at the time, she was just simply of the view that knowledge of these sort of subjects would be of assistance to her husband. And of course, this was about to turn out to be one of the, the greatest understatements pretty much of the century. And of course, tragedy struck, as we learned in part one, with Washington. And you can imagine the shock she had to see her husband carried into the Brooklyn home after a second and really severe attack of the Benz in 1872. And this would have been horrifying. So he'd presided over the sinking of the New York and Brooklyn caissons. He'd successfully defeated the fire that threatened the structural integrity of the Brooklyn Tower. And of course, that's where he suffered his first attack of the Benz in that process. And then over a period of in pretty astonishing 221 days he'd managed the construction of the New York caisson. This was to depths never previously attempted. But what should have been a celebration at that stage turned to tragedy when Washington was again taken ill and in terrible pain he's brought home to his Brooklyn house and the doctors do not believe he'd survive the night. Now Emily, now only 29 years of age, applies herself to nursing him, all the time knowing that the future of this bridge hung in the balance without Washington who was simply going to finish it now he didn't die that night he survived the night and the following day and then he appeared to rally for a while and soon he was back on site he was supervising the pouring of the concrete into the New York caisson but his recovery was was short-lived he relapsed suffering from fatigue depression irritability stomach trouble pain and loss of feeling in his legs and he was basically consigned to his bedroom but despite the pain he continued to work on the bridge now, the summer of 1872 turned to autumn, and by December 1872, the Brooklyn Tower was 42 metres above the river, with the New York Tower catching up. But by this stage, Washington had been absent from both the site and from the bridge's trustees for some time, and Emily faced her first big challenge in the role that she was going to grow into over the next 10 years. So she travelled to New York and she met Henry C. Murphy and he was the president of the New York Bridge Company. Now despite her husband's illness and his absence, she was able to convince Murphy to leave him in the position of chief engineer. Now Murphy agreed on the condition that everything proceeded to go to plan with the bridge. Now as winter turned to spring, doctors told Emily there was little chance of her husband recovering. It really was only a matter of time before he died. Now, he needed a break from the project, and in an attempt to revive him, they visited a spa in Germany. Now, they only planned to stay for two months, but they ended up staying six, and throughout all this, Washington simply showed no improvement. The sea journey back to the US was pure torture for him. And by now, it was late 73, and, and although they'd bought a house in Brooklyn, they actually moved back to their Trenton house, which was almost 100 kilometres from New York. The problem was Washington couldn't 
bear to be near this bridge. And when he was away from it, like in his house in Trenton, 100 kilometres away, the, the pain seemed to be alleviated. Now, around this time, work was beginning on the Brooklyn Anchorage, and it was constructed from granite and contained four big anchor plates, one per cable, and each of these would weigh 21 tonne. And in 1875, work began on the New York Anchorage, and old tenements and warehouses were tore down to make way for it. Construction of the towers continued at the same time, and Washington worked diligently from his bedroom, and he finalised detail after detail on this bridge, and he was absolutely relentless. And he, he achieved all this while never actually visiting the site. Instead, he was writing letters to his assistant engineers, and his ability to identify potential future problems and resolve them before they actually became problems was absolutely legendary. And years later, Emily would praise the assistant engineers, and she'd say that the bridge would never have been completed without them on site. And, and some of these engineers had worked with the Roebling family for years. So the, the chief mechanic, Farrington, who'd helped him put out the fire in the Brooklyn um, caisson, he'd worked with Washington's father on the Cincinnati and uh, Niagara bridges. And he was actually the first to cross both of those rivers. And he did so hanging from the initial suspension wire when it was put in place. And of course, this was for public spectacle and to get people interested in the bridge. Now, through all this, Emily had been Washington's nurse since his illness struck. And she was basically the only person he could bear near him because of the the pain he was in. Then her role slowly began to change. And it began to change because Washington was convinced he was going blind. So to preserve his eyesight, he stopped reading and writing and Emily became his secretary. So he sat there and he dictated all his correspondence to her and then she'd read it back to him so he could make revisions. And by his own admission, he, he... came totally to rely on her and he wrote afterwards at first I thought I would succumb but I had a strong tower to lean on my wife a woman of infinite tact and wisest counsel what was happening was the information that Emily had naturally absorbed through this this process was augmented by her previous study and, and she was fast becoming an authority on the bridge then by 1876 both towers and anchorages were completed and focus turned to stringing the cables across the East River and on the 14th of August, 1876, a one-inch thick wire was spooled out from behind a boat beside the Brooklyn Tower. The free end was pulled up over the tower and the boat crossed the river to the New York side. Then the wire was allowed to sink to the riverbed. And then they took this wire and they took it over the New York Tower and then a cannon was sounded to halt river traffic. And a huge crowd had turned out to watch this and they cheered as the wire was hoisted up to break through the surface of the water until it hung in the air between the two towers. A second wire was added that day to make a continuous traveller rope that could be driven by an engine. And finally, the two towers were linked after all these years. And it was a complete moment of triumph. And then on the 25th of August, as with the Niagara Bridge and the Cincinnati Bridge, Farrington would swing across the river on a plank of wood secured to this thin wire and he was watched by thousands. He was 60 years of age at the time and he wore his Sunday best and he waved his hat to the enthusiastic crowd and afterwards he he said in his typically unfazed manner that the ride gave him a magnificent view and such pleasing sensations as probably I shall never experience again. Now, with this wire in place, the spinning of the bridge cables could proceed. So workers stood on special platforms as a continuous reel of wire was fed over one tower, across the river, over the second tower, through the anchorage, only to repeat its journey in the opposite direction. Now, these these cables were were incredible. So each of the four cables on the bridge would be 400 millimetres in diameter. 
and each would be comprised of 5,434 wires. And if you took just one of these cables and you unspooled it, the total length of wire in each cable would be a pretty incredible 5,600 kilometres in length. Now it was 1877 and the Roeblings finally moved back to their house in Brooklyn. But Washington was still too ill to visit the site. And what he used to do is he used to sit in his bedroom window and use a telescope to monitor construction on the site. And it had been five years since he'd been stricken with the bends. And Emily, over this time, was fast being recognised as the public face of the chief engineer. So she'd make daily trips to the site, she'd deliver her husband's instructions, and she'd bring back the issues from the assistant engineers that required attention. But before long, she began resolving the issues herself. And while she admired the engineers on site's loyalty, they were equally in awe of her technical knowledge and ability. And there are a whole range of stories illustrating her, her mastery of the technical detail and her knowledge of this bridge. For example, when officials or contractors visited the Roebling House to discuss issues with Washington, they usually were met by Emily, and she resolved their concerns. And Manny became convinced she was indeed the chief engineer, and in some cases, contractors marked their correspondence to her, not Washington. And then once for when bids for steel and ironwork were released for the bridge, the design called for these unusually shaped members. And many of the prospective bidders actually approached Emily for clarification, and this was clarification she, not Washington, provided. And in 1879, Farrington gave a number of public lectures on the bridge's construction. And, you know, one of these had over 2,000 attendees, so they were immensely popular. And he was praised for putting together these, re- these, uh, these lectures, but it was widely believed that the lectures were actually written by Emily. Now, the American Society of Engineers records her as the first woman to ever address the society. And this is controversial because there's no actual evidence to support this claim, but the, the American Society of Civil Engineers claim it anyway. That means that if she was, she addressed the society 23 years before a woman by the name of Nora Staunton Barney Blige would be admitted as a junior member in 1906. And it would be a pretty incredible 44 years before Elsie Eaves would be admitted as a full member in 1927. And then one of my favourite stories from the bridge is that a delegation of trustees turned up on site to do a tour of construction in 1881. And when they climbed up to deck level on the Brooklyn Tower, they were pretty surprised to be greeted by Emily. Now, she explained the technical aspects of construction to them as they crossed a narrow timber walkway between the towers. You can imagine how high up this is, and these are people who are not necessarily used to the heights. She explained everything to them and after they got to the other side some of the trustees decided that they were a little bit unnerved by the height and they were going to make the return journey back across the river by ferry not back across the bridge. Emily throughout all this had seemed quite unperturbed about the height. Now when you hear these sort of stories it's not surprising that questions begin to get asked about what is Emily's role you know and the newspapers are asking has the chief engineer died you know he hasn't been seen in public in in five years is emily actually acting as the chief engineer and apparently some of the press took the view that you know the because the chief engineer actually trusted his wife for technical matters this was evidence he was clearly losing his mind and you know a lot of the speculation was negative about what she was doing but some pretty formidable champions came out in her defense and um, the assistant engineers idolized her and then at a dinner for the alumni of rensler polytechnic institute which was her husband's alma mater an engineer by the name of Rossiter W. Raymond, who was visiting from overseas, 
told those before him what many of them already knew. And in what's a pretty extraordinary speech, he began by declaring that essentially behind every good man was a good woman. And then he summarized the feelings in the room. And he commenced with this statement that you know, vividly illustrates the level of sexism Emily battled. And then culminates in this backhanded compliment that you know, illustrates Emily's reputation at the time. And he says, gentlemen, I know that the name of a woman should not be lightly spoken in a public place, but I believe you will acquit me of any lack of decency or irreverence when I utter what this moment half articulates upon all your lips, the name of Mrs. Washington Roebling. So slowly, she was getting the attention she deserved, but I always find it interesting he couldn't call her Emily Roebling. He still had to call her the wife of Washington Roebling. But the challenges were far from over. So inferior wire was supplied by the wire manufacturer, and this had been already woven into the cables before it was discovered. You know, there was the collapse of the Tay Bridge in 1879, and this raised questions among the public about you know whether it was complete folly to even continue construction of such a, an ambitious bridge. And but Washington and Emily actually would have to stare down attempts to to remove him as the chief engineer. There was actually a vote, and the trustees agreed to leave him in the role by a pretty narrow margin of of 10 to 7. Then finally, in April 1883, the bridge was finished and preparations began for its official opening the following month. And rightly, prior to the opening ceremony, Emily would be the first to cross the bridge, doing so in a grasshopper jig with a retractable hood. And she was then in her late 30s and she carried with her a white rooster, which is the symbol of victory. And this bridge wasn't even the end of her achievements. She went on to study law, she travelled widely, she even attended the coronation of Tsar Nicholas II in Russia. And then at age 59, she died from what was believed to be cancer. But what of, what of dear Washington? Washington, who was told he was going to die back in 1872. Well, he defied the doctors, and he lived on, and he even remarried after Emily's death. And he lived to the age of 89. He outlived Emily by 23 years. And it's, it's quite fitting, the end. He, uh, even though he'd remarried, he insisted on being buried beside Emily. And there's a huge amount of speculation about, you know, just to, to what extent... Emily's involvement in the bridge was. And there's, there was general disbelief at the time that this engineering marvel could be the work of a woman. And David McCullough in his book, The Great Bridge, he pretty aptly summarises her contribution. He says, In truth, she had by then a thorough grasp of the engineering involved. She had a quick and retentive mind, a natural gift for mathematics, and had been a diligent student long before her husband was incapacitated. And she worked very hard to hide her contribution, and, and primarily this was to protect her, her husband. If, they, if, if the public and the trustees knew what she was doing, they probably would have removed him from his position. So, on the official opening, while thousands of people from Brooklyn and New York marvelled at their new bridge, it was only fitting that when Congressman Hewitt took to the podium, he began his tribute to Emily with the words. One name, however, which may find no place in the official records, cannot be passed over here in silence. And then he went on to describe how in ancient times, when a great structure was completed, a goddess was chosen to care and protect for it, a bit like Athena and the Acropolis. And then he declared this, and we'll finish with this. This was the speech he gave that day. He said, With this bridge will ever be coupled the thought of one. Through the subtle alembic of whose brain, and by whose facile fingers, communication was maintained between the directing power of its construction and the obedient agencies of its execution. 
It is thus an everlasting monument to the self-sacrificing devotion of a woman and of her capacity for the higher education from which she has been too long disparred. The name of Mrs. Emily Warren Roebling will thus be inseparably associated with all that is admirable in human nature and with all that is wonderful in the constructive world of art. Thank you.